If you're struggling to lose weight, you've probably heard about weight loss medications like Wigovi or ZepBound, and you might be wondering if they're right for you. Meet Plush Care, a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. If you qualify, they can safely prescribe you medication from the comfort of your own home. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. plushcare.com slash weight loss. Good morning to you. This is Mike Smith, and we start today with the historic apology by the Canadian government and the country's top military general to the victims and survivors of sexual misconduct in the Canadian military. This apology was a long time coming. And victims of sexual trauma in the military have been asking for this for years as the drive continues now for major reforms in Canada's military to eliminate this in the future and to deliver justice to the victims of military sexual trauma in the past. Got a great guest standing by on this, Sam Samplonius from It's Not Just 700.ca, which is an awesome advocacy group. First, have a listen to this. This is Defense Minister Anita Anand delivering that apology yesterday. I apologize on behalf of the government of Canada and on behalf of those elected officials who, throughout the history of the Canadian Armed Forces, had the responsibility to protect you and who failed to do so. I apologize to the thousands of Canadians who were harmed because your government did not protect you, nor did we ensure that the right systems were in place to ensure justice and accountability. Okay, Defence Minister Anita Anand is speaking yesterday, delivering that apology. Let's discuss now with my guest, Sam Samplonius. Sam has over 40 years in the Reserve Force Service. She is a survivor of military sexual trauma herself, and I am very pleased to welcome her to the show. Sam, thank you very much for coming on today. Thank you for inviting me, Mike. Hey. It's especially nice to hear uh, Fraser Valley news. I grew up in the Fraser Valley, so hearing all those familiar cities was just just a blast from the past and made me feel just awesome, especially since we have green grass and sunshine here and our snow melted. So where, where are you right ironic. now? Where, where are you right now? I'm posted to Kingston, Ontario now. Right, right. Kingston. Yes. Okay. Well, it, it's great to have you on the, on the air here back in your, uh, your old stomping grounds, grounds here, Sam. Let me ask you about when, we, when you listen to that apology yesterday as someone who's been a, a victim of this trauma yourself and a very brave advocate for others, what went through your mind yesterday when you heard this apology? What did you think? I really appreciated the fact that they have basically touched on every single impact that I have heard expressed by the survivors in our group, um, friends, colleagues that I've come to know through my work with INJ 700 and myself as well. I mean, they hit every point. I think that I, I can't even think of one that, that wasn't mentioned, like the whole denial, the being told there was, you know, don't rock the boat. Um, yeah. Just all those things. Just, it was, it was 
very all-encompassing, all-inclusive, you know, including employees, because as a reservist, I also worked as a civilian D&D employee for a time, for a couple decades within the Department of National Defense, and experienced harassment and sexual assault even within that position. So just having everybody included was, that was really great to hear. Yeah, you were in the Reserve Forces for 40 years of service, and thank you for your service to Canada. And can you talk a little bit about, you know, what you experienced? Like, you mentioned that you're a victim yourself, and it sounds like you went you went through a lot of this, right, during your career? Yeah, so I, I joined the Reserves in, in 1981, because uh, I was still in high school, so I was hoping to finish high school and go into the regular force and have a career in peacekeeping and travel the world and help people. Um so I did do that. I went through Cornwallis. Um, essentially, though, right after that, I was posted to a, a unit that supported the airborne. So they were very resistant to having women in their packing parachutes. Um, they didn't think that was a woman's job. Um, they didn't think that we'd be strong enough to do that. Um, and when I say they, I say a few particular people. There was a lot of bystanders that didn't do anything when they saw stuff as well. But it was the 80s, and we just weren't really that welcome in some of the trades. The combat arms trades weren't open to us yet. Um, so it was definitely a difficult time. There was a few people that made it their mission in life almost to try to drum out anybody that thought they could be a soldier that didn't look like a soldier in their mind. Right. Speaking to Sam, Sam Plonius, co-chairperson of It's Not Just 700.ca, what does the name of your organization mean? So what happened was in 2015, Madame Deschamps released her report where she had interviewed 700 people on um, aspects of sexual misconduct in the military at the time. And the report was released. And when we were looking through the veterans groups, uh, the the founder, Marie Claude, actually, I should say, was looking through veterans groups, trying to find support for the report, trying to find other people that were just as offended, um, you know, that these things were being brought to light, but nothing seemed to be being done about it. And she decided to create a group called It's Just 700 because there were some comments made that someone said, well, it's just 700. So 700, like, 700 victims, right? Right, right. Yeah. And that was just who yeah. she interviewed at the time. Right, right. Yeah. And so you're saying that, no, it goes a lot, it goes a lot beyond, much further than right. that. Yeah. And that's why when Marie Claude stepped down in June of this year and myself and Dr. Laurie Bouchard uh, took over the leadership of the group to try to keep it going, um, we uh, renamed it It's Not Just 700 because right. I think by that time this year it was pretty clear that it's not just 700 anymore. Yeah. Let me uh, play a clip here for you from Canada's top military general here, General Wayne Eyre, Chief of the Defence Staff, also delivering an apology here yesterday. And here he is speaking, and then I'll get your thoughts. Your leaders and those who preceded us did not make sufficient change. The harm you suffered happened on our collective watch, on my watch, whether through naivety or ignorance, both inexcusable, the problem persisted. The harm continued, and it has yet to be successfully or sufficiently acknowledged or addressed. All right, General Wayne Eyre there, Chief of the Defense Staff, also delivering an apology yesterday. Sam, where does this have to go from here now? That This is an apology that your group had been asking for for a long time and other people have been seeking. So the apologies here, you appear to be quite pleased with it. What happens next? Yes, we were. We had recommended when they asked for our input that the apology be delivered as quickly after the deadline for the class action suit as possible, because a lot of people had opened themselves up to 
old traumas and old wounds or even wounds that hadn't healed yet. So we thought it was very important that they try to get some of them that could get that closure from an apology as soon as possible. So we're happy that they did it, um, you know, within a reasonable time frame. And just hearing the words um, for myself, it's even though I knew that they meant it from the, the work I've been involved in and seeing stuff that, you know, is going on that hasn't been released yet, like ideas that are being proposed that they can't really release until they know for sure when they're going to happen. Um, it was it was still great to hear, and I'm hoping that more people will get that hope that, that myself and Lori have as, as co-chairs, that, you know, we see the changes happening. We see people that are really committed to wanting to make the CAF a better place because that's why we're doing this work. We want it to be a safe place. We want it to be an inclusive place. Right. And we know it can be. It just, it's going to take some work. And you can't order people to be nice, unfortunately. Um, so it's it's going to take modeling of leadership. Leadership has to model the behavior that we want to see. And when we talk about leadership, we're not just talking about generals or majors or colonels. We're talking about everybody from the first leadership position that you get, which is corporal, all the way up you know, to the CDS. And and I have faith that our new CDS, um, I've known over the years, not extremely personally, just uh, as a person whose reputation has preceded himself. And he he is a good, honorable man. And I think he's the right model that we need, you know, our leadership to follow. Right. You mentioned the class action lawsuit that is underway for victims of sexual trauma in the military. What is the status of that? Are you part of that yourself? Um. We were part of what happened was when the RCMP had put in their class action, we as a peer support group talked about that and said, well, a lot of those same things have happened to us and they were successful. And as we all know, unfortunately, it's only when you have to make them pay money that people seem to listen. But we wanted to make sure that within the class action, it was ensuring that funds would be devoted to programs for peer support so that we could have funded peer support because we were just trying to do it with people sharing their experiences. We have no clinical professional people. We're all just people sharing how we got through stuff. So we wanted somebody that was clinically able to provide that support. We wanted Veterans Affairs Canada to recognize that military sexual trauma um, did result in PTSD, because up until then, um, if you put in a claim for PTSD and it was due to military sexual trauma, you were usually denied because it wasn't recognized. Mm. Um, So now they have a special unit set up within Veterans Affairs Canada that is people that are more better informed as to what additional things can happen to a person that's been sexually assaulted because it's not just the assault and the mental stress of that. There could be physical symptoms. um, There could be physical damage that happens. Um, It's, you know, there's just so many things that happen and we're really glad that money has been put towards those programs and we'll continue to fund them because that's what's going to support and restore our survivors. Sam, thank you for coming on with your perspective today. We're following it very closely. We'll see where it goes from here, and I'm very grateful to you for your time today. Thanks a lot. Thank you so much, Mike. Have a great day. All right, welcome back to the show. Let's talk about the Coquihalla Highway now lies in pieces after the mudslides and the flooding that we saw in November. Everyone has seen those aerial shots of the Coquihalla 
uh, just lying in pieces like that. When we first saw those photos, I thought, wow, that's going to take a long time to reopen that highway. Ever since then, it appears a lot of progress is being made to get the highway open again, at least to commercial traffic. Have a listen to this now. This is Transportation Minister Rob Fleming speaking yesterday about the repair efforts going on in the Coquihalla. Coquihalla is alive with construction activity every waking hour. We have that to thank um, about 300 people who are now working with 200 pieces of heavy equipment along that corridor. And one thing I heard on, on Friday again and again is that people involved in repairing the Coquihalla take this very personally. It's a point of pride to be part of this important project. Okay, let's talk to one of the top leaders in the industry here getting these highways rebuilt in British Columbia. Kelly Scott, president of the BC Road Builders and Heavy Construction Association. I'm pleased to welcome him back. Hi, Kelly. Morning, Mike. Thanks a lot for coming on. It sounds like your guys are making a lot of progress here in repairing the Coquihalla. Can you give us an update? What's it like there? Sure. You know, from a, from a month ago, uh, uh, the direction has been there, and the crews have shown up with the equipment from all four corners of the province. I think we've got 300-plus uh, people working there, and they are, well, since the flood, I guess, and the disaster, working uh, 24 hours a day, uh, seven days a week, with maybe a couple days rest. Uh, and they continue to work there, so it's 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 coming around. We're we're making it, you know, with this round-the-clock work, it's certainly making good progress in a lot of the uh, permanent and temporary road repairs. Uh, and we're we're fairly confident that we're going to be uh, meeting the targets that the minister set for us for completion. I remember the last time you were on the show, and we talked about some of the challenges in repairing this highway, given the fact that there are so few access roads to some of these sections of the Coquihalla that where that's been broken up. And it sounds like the crews basically started at both ends of the highway, and have just you know they fix one bridge or fix one section of highway that's broken, and they just move on down the road to the next one. Is that basically the strategy? They've been doing that, plus they've been able to get access to some of those projects in the middle there. Um, but you've had a real army of, of machines, uh, you know, 100, uh, almost 200 machines in there working with operators. So it's like an army of ants just going at one project at a time or starting in the middle and working out. It's stuff we've done before, and as I've said before, never have we had the magnitude of so many slides and floods at the same time, but we, we have a system and a model that we follow, and obviously under the great direction of Ministry of Transportation, um, are continuing to make progress and getting this road open for everybody. You heard the minister say in that clip there that for the people who are working to get this highway up and running again, that this is like a, a point of pride for them, that they feel the urgency to get this critical travel corridor open again. Would you, would you say that's true? Like the people who are working around the clock here, like this is, this is personal. Like let's get this thing open again. Yeah, and mindful yeah. that a, a lot of our people uh, live in those communities. This is a, a source of getting their communities open up to the rest of the world, if you will. And as for the pride of uh, operation, um, you know, I think any road builder you talk to, building bridges, tunnels, roads, paving roads, there's always a pride of work that has gone on from the contractors working for the Ministry of Transportation that, that just uh, permeates the whole industry. So we are very proud of it. Uh, and, and when you're putting in the look at this disaster and then you look back at what you, how you helped to, to open this up again, there will be some great pride of workmanship there too. Right. The plan here is to get the Coquihalla reopened for commercial traffic. So these are, would you describe these as 
like temporary repairs that are happening right now? Yeah, I know. You know, uh, my sense is we're not going to see the coke that we saw six months ago. It, in time, we will. But right now, we've got to start getting the commercial trucks coming down there in a managed speed, uh, if you will. But get that convoy of trucks coming down. The, the rail lines are going now, uh, and if we can get the trucks coming down the coke, uh, then it'll alleviate the pressure that we're seeing on the number three and the ninety-nine for people trying to come in. Well, yeah, and the other one, that, and this was mentioned by the transportation minister yesterday, if you can get that Coquihalla opened, I mean, maybe you can start reopening Highway 3 to just regular commuter traffic again. Like, you know, like right now, the Highway 3 is the only, the only, it's the only, Highway 3 is the only way to get to the interior right now. Correct? Yeah, though I, I came down from Prince George about two weeks ago, and we came in on the Duffy Lake Road. Um, but wow. the number three is what most people use, um, and and the contractor that's looking after the number three, it's in, it's you know it's extra maintenance being done on that to make sure it's the the blacktop is black, and because uh, we know that a lot of people using the number three aren't used to driving that road, and it's uh, not like the Coquihalla was. It may have some inclines and declines on the Coke, but at yeah. least it was fairly straight. Speaking to Kelly Scott, he's the president of the BC Road Builders and Heavy Construction Association. As you look ahead to this repair effort, what about what does the weather look like? Like, if you get a dump of snow up there, can you can your people still keep working? Yeah, good question. Um, you know, uh, we had some snow last weekend. I was looking at the forecast this morning. It looks okay. Uh, challenge will be the paving section side of it. Uh, if we get to 10 feet of snow, it'll be tough to pave. But uh, I think we have a window here for the next three, four days that uh, uh, will allow us to get through most of that work, I hope. Yeah, what is the toughest challenge here in doing these type of repairs? Like you mentioned that, you know, your people have done this type of work before. For people who are just looking at those photos, though, and they see the the highway like broken up into pieces, like is that is that, does that pose a particular challenge, or is that just sort of another another day on the job? Okay, you've, we got to fix this thing. We, we get her done. Yeah, it's 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 stitching the province together. It was uh, we stitched it together uh, fifty years ago, and we're restitching this one together. Uh, and and the solutions we'll come up with. Are, are temporary, but there will be more permanent solutions as we go forward. So it's, um, as we've always said, it's just you just get out there, you know what you have to do, and, and how we go about stitching it is, is an important part of the work process we have. Let me play another clip here for you from the Transportation Minister here speaking yesterday about the planned reopening of the Coquihalla for, at least for commercial traffic, and he continues to say it could be earlier than expected. Here's what he had to say yesterday. We initially targeted that to be open by the end of January. Last week, we moved that target up a couple of weeks to early January. <clears throat> and now, thanks to the determination of crews who are going 24-7 at it in terms of the repair work, we expect to be able to open up even earlier than that. Okay, so if it's going to be earlier than early January, that's pretty darn soon, is it? Is it not? Kelly, Like, when do you think this highway could reopen here? Well, January, early January is a little over two and a half weeks away. Well, yeah. Um, uh, so, uh, weather permitting, uh, I think, uh, along with what the minister, minister is saying, we think still uh, January, uh, maybe even earlier now, uh, weather permitting, Mike, because as you know, the, if the snow falls up there, it'll delay everything. So, um, right now, it looks like it's going to be okay, uh, but weather permitting will have an in, certainly have an impact on when uh, we'll be able to get most of those uh, roads open up for people in the Coke. Have you experienced any problems with lack of supplies, resources, machinery, 
uh, workers in, in getting these repairs done, or is it all gone fairly smoothly? You know, uh, with the leadership of ministry, the, the, the collaboration of the industry of contractors, I think there's like 15 different contractors up there. There's 100, 200 operators up there, pieces of equipment. Uh, we've not seen it come together like this so quickly and and just be collaborating, working with each other, helping each other out. Somebody runs out of some supplies, another contractor has supplies for them. Um, so it's uh, it's really come together nicely. The supply chain has been strong for us. Um, uh, it's really been an effort from everybody, from the heavy equipment people down to the uh, suppliers. They've all come together. Even the hotels and motels in the area to put up uh, the workers have come together. So it's certainly been an, an effort of a community and an industry that uh, we've never seen before. Yeah, and the minister mentioned that the the plan for attacking this thing is on the north end of the highway bottle top bridge is where there's access has been created there and carolyn bridge at at the south end access there and that has speeded up the movement of of equipment so like how is that working you've got people working on both ends of the highway and then they finish one job and just move up move up to the next job is that how yeah, it's, is that your con- as, as you've said, they've got they're coming in from the south, they're coming in from the north, and in some areas they've been able to punch through into the middle of the project. But uh, it's just uh, they, and also don't forget that you've had in the middle of all this has been the pipeline project, which has been shut down, and that contractor up there had uh, sixty, seventy pieces of equipment and operators available too. So you've been able to disperse equipment throughout the project, and, uh, and not just one step at a time, but starting in the middle, moving north-south, that also, as well as coming from the south and the north to meet in the middle. I'll let you get back to work, Kelly. Thank you for taking the time today. Okay. Wyndham Hotels and Resorts makes travel possible for all. Whether it's the long haulers looking for a great cup of coffee, a roomier rest for the on-a-wim road trippers, or a place to make summer memories with the whole family. No matter who you are, where you're going, or why, with 24 trusted brands to choose from like La Quinta, Days Inn, and Super 8, your Wyndham is waiting. Get the lowest price at WyndhamHotels.com. Restrictions apply. Visit website for more details. Families have a lot going on. Let Ollie help manage the mental load with new cognitive help supplements for everyone four and up, like delicious Lolly Focus Pops or Lolly Mellow Pops for kids. And for parents, try three new Brainy Chews to help you focus, chill out, or get energized. Find these cognitive health buddies for the whole fam at Ollie.com. That's O L L Y.com. These statements have not been evaluated by the Food and Drug Administration. This product is not intended to diagnose, treat, cure, or prevent any disease. Mike. All right, welcome back to the show. Let's talk about the campaign to end smoking. Check out what they're doing in New Zealand. They are not just banning cigarettes and smoking. They are banning tobacco, period. This is amazing what New Zealand is doing. They will ban the sale of tobacco to the next generation of people in that country. Anyone born after 2008 will not be allowed to buy cigarettes or tobacco products in their lifetime. Have a listen to this report now from CNBC reporter Shepard Smith. New Zealand is cracking down on smoking in a way we've rarely seen on the planet. The country's government is planning to ban future generations from ever buying tobacco products. Under the proposal, anyone born after 2008 will never be allowed to purchase cigarettes or any other tobacco. The bill also aims to reduce the level of nicotine in cigarettes available to older people. 
New Zealand's government expected to introduce legislation to Parliament next year. Local officials say they hope to make the country completely smoke-free by 2025. The World Health Organization describes the tobacco ep- epidemic as one of the biggest public health threats the world has ever faced. It reports tobacco use kills more than 8 million people. All right, New, New Zealand moving to ban tobacco sales, period, in the entire country. Should Canada do the same thing? Let's discuss now with my guest, Jack Boomer. Jack is with the BC Clean Air Coalition. It's a team-up of the Heart and Stroke Foundation and also the Canadian Cancer Society. And I'm very pleased to welcome him back to the show. Hey, Jack. Hey, Mike. Thanks a lot for coming on. So what do you think about what New Zealand is doing here? Well, first of all, New Zealand should be commended for taking bold action to uh, eventually get rid of tobacco use in their uh, country because what they're doing is they're looking forward and saying, we know that tobacco is the leading cause of preventable death and that there is something that we can do about it. And so they're taking bold action uh, to move forward on the, in this way. Right. And the way that they're doing it here is that they're going to bring in this sort of escalating uh, age cutoff for buying tobacco. So as we go along into future generations here, like eventually, you know, as we go along, you won't be what you won't be able to buy tobacco period at all in New Zealand. Is that correct? Well, the way that I understand it, it, that's exactly the case, is that they start with uh, someone who's about 18 when, uh, when they're uh, in 2025, and then the next year, it, you know, it'll be 19, and so th- that generation will never uh, legally be allowed to purchase tobacco products. And so the thing about New Zealand, and, and the thing that's getting the most play is this one thing, but what they're also doing is they're looking at other measures to um, magnify the impact. And so one of the impacts is to reduce the number of retail outlets that are um, available in the country. You know, one of the things that I've read is that in poorer uh, neighborhoods or, or neighborhoods that have a lower socioeconomic status, um, there are up to four times more tobacco retailers in those neighborhoods than there are in more affluent neighborhoods. And that is because people who are, like, they may they smoke more and and uh, they have more access to tobacco products. When you make it harder for people to smoke, many people will give up their um, tobacco products and will quit or reduce. And when they reduce, it becomes easier for them to quit. So the other thing that they're talking about is reducing the nicotine content in tobacco products as well. So it isn't just this one thing that we're talking about. They're looking at a number of measures to support the population in New Zealand to become... Uh, tobacco-free. And so it's very, very exciting to look to them because one of the things is in British Columbia, we are almost the same size as New New Zealand. New Zealand has a population just over 5 million. British Columbia has a population just over 5 million. The smoking rate, I think, is a little bit, uh, the per capita rate is a little bit higher in British Columbia than in New Zealand. And so, um, and New Zealand has uh, Aboriginal populations, as, as do we. And so there are a lot of similarities. The one thing, of course, New Zealand is an island, and so it makes it a little bit uh, different than British Columbia because we're sa- surrounded by other places. But certainly it is something that um, we should be uh, looking very closely to New Zealand and uh, seeing what we could do that would be innovative compared to what they're doing. 
You know, speaking to Jack Boomer, BC Clean Air Coalition, about what they're doing in New Zealand with tobacco, very aggressive moves here by the New Zealand government. Like you touched briefly on this one, Jack, about reducing the number of outlets that will be allowed to sell tobacco products. So they would remove cigarette sales from supermarkets and from corner stores. Like the number of shops that would be authorized to sell cigarettes in the country right now is around 8,000 outlets that would be reduced to under 500. Mm-hmm. I mean, that, that's massive. Do you think they should do the same thing here? Well, the, Mike, this is something we've talked about earlier. You talked to so many people you might not remember, but we've talked about the fact in British Columbia there are about 4,000 retail outlets to sell tobacco products, so about half of what New Zealand has. But one of the things is that we're the only province in Canada that still allows t- tobacco to be sold in pharmacies, a right. place where people go get t- to get prescriptions. The other thing is that to get a tobacco license in British Columbia is a one-page form, and it doesn't cost anything to get a tobacco license. Again, a travesty, in my opinion, that you can just go online, Google, uh, I want a tobacco license, and you could probably fill out the form in less than five minutes, and you could be awarded a tobacco license to sell one of the most deadliest products that will kill one out of every two users, as in if it's used as intended, and yet it you don't have to pay a fee, and uh, you can just and it's a one-page form. Yeah, t- tobacco sales in pharmacies and drugstores have been controversial for a long time. Actually, a-, a caller on the open line brought up that issue earlier uh, a couple of days ago on the show, wondering why British Columbia allows that. How many other provinces allow that, that you can go into a pharmacy or drugstore and buy, buy cigarettes? Are we the only one, or are there other provinces that allow that? British Columbia is has the dubious distinction of being the only province that allows tobacco to be sold in pharmacies. Wow, wow. Now, you know, one wow. of the things is that most... Uh, uh, stores that are completely, you know, 100% a pharmacy do not sell tobacco products. Uh, but uh, we're talking about uh, various uh, um, stores that you know might sell uh, groceries, a grocery store, or sure. uh, convenience stores in other places. But you know, the thing is that th- there will be a pharmacy in a, in many grocery stores uh, and larger ones, and that they're still allowed to sell tobacco products. So. <laughs> You know, it's a one of the thing many of those places will say it's a matter of convenience because if they don't have the tobacco products and somebody has to go somewhere else, well, that's part of the whole point of making it harder for, when you make it harder for people to smoke or to purchase their tobacco products, the evidence is that it will lead them to smoke fewer and possibly quit. And that's what we're trying to do. Let me, re- let me return to the big headline out of New Zealand this week and the measures they're taking, and that is banning the sale of tobacco products, period in kind of an escalating age bracket so eventually eventually just won't be you won't be able to legally buy tobacco in New Zealand it sounds like like one of the things that I've heard about on some of the pushback on this is that would you drive tobacco sales underground that you would create a a black market for tobacco and and put it in the hands of of gangs or or criminal enterprises and basically just you know, you'd put it back into the hands of criminals, almost like prohibition. Are you buying that? I mean, there there is some pushback from people in New Zealand on this. Say this is going too far, and it will actually backfire. Well, you know, being realistic, and the evidence uh, 
uh, New Zealand acknowledges that there has been a black market and a contraband market. Absolutely. But that doesn't mean you just stop doing things because potentially there will be this black market. What you do is you increase enforcement and you find ways to combat the black market but, and, and you ensure that there are appropriate penalties in place. I think what we have to look, though, is at the overall positive aspect that uh, most people are law-abiding and want to follow the law. And most people want to quit smoking and not smoke. Once they become addicted, they realize, oh, my goodness, I've become almost a slave to the, the nicotine. And if you ask anyone if they want to smoke, 70 to 80% of people will say they want to quit in the next year. And so what, we, what New Zealand is attempting to do, I believe, is to create the environment where if they reduce from 8,000 outlets to 500, then it's not available on every corner. If they're also saying we're going to, try to, we're going to create a smoke-free generation and gradually increase the age over time, give people the opportunity, increase opportunities to quit smoking and providing cessation supports and to assist people to quit smoking, then they're creating the environment. And in tobacco control, we call it a multi-pronged approach and not saying all dollars should be put into cessation to help people quit. Not all dollars should be in prevention. Not all dollars should be in enforcement. What we need to do is to provide a number of opportunities, um, uh, this multi-pronged approach, and just say, okay, we're going to provide a bit of support in all these ways for those that are addicted to nicotine, or, uh, uh, protect people from secondhand smoke, which is a very big way to assist people to quit smoking by creating smoke-free environments. And doing all of this will help achieve them with their bold action. All right, welcome back. As we continue talking about tobacco sales in British Columbia, should BC and Canada ban tobacco sales? That's what New Zealand is doing. What about banning tobacco in drugstores and pharmacies? Jack Boomer is my guest, Clean Air Coalition of BC. Right to your phone calls, Michael in Vancouver. Hey, Michael. Hey, Michael. Hi, Jack. Um, I would like to say that I was a pack-a-day smoker for 40 years. It took a triple bypass and a dope coma that went on for six days afterwards to get me to quit smoking cigarettes. Anything that can stop young people from smoking cigarettes, I put my hand up for. I think keeping, keeping cigarettes out of grocery stores and out of, uh, out of drug stores, absolutely. Michael, thanks for your call, and thank you for sharing that. Uh, Jack, what do you think about that? Like, I can understand the case against uh, pharmacies, but would you would you advocate for like grocery stores not being allowed to sell tobacco, corner stores, gas stations? Well, I think what we have to do is we have to look a hard hard look at places where people access tobacco products and the location of those. And as was mentioned, we we did some work with the uh, in the Greater Victoria area about 10 years ago to look at where the retail outlets were. And around alternative schools, alternative high schools, there were seven retail outlets within half a kilometer. Um, you do not find that in affluent neighborhoods uh, where uh, that number uh, or that access to tobacco products. And therefore, we need to look really long and hard about where are tobacco products being sold and how are they getting accessed. And uh, maybe we do, I absolutely believe we need to reduce the number of right. retail outlets. Okay, lots of calls here. I'll try and get through a lot of them here. Errol and Delta. Hi, Errol. What do you think? Uh, good morning. I call on Adrian Dix and Bonnie Henry to get all tobacco products out of pharmacies now. Uh, it's, it's eight years late, uh, but of course, better late than never, I suppose. And when Adrian Dix was in opposition, he was screaming at the Liberals long and hard 
to get tobacco out of pharmacies. What, what's he? Why is he doing nothing now? Is that? Is that uh, thank, gonna, thanks for the call. Is that true, Jack? Was was uh, Adrian Dix calling for tobacco out of out out of pharmacies in opposition? You know, I don't, I don't absolutely recall that, but Arrow would absolutely know. He's a strong supporter of tobacco control measures, and, you know, um, it just makes a lot of sense. Okay, Al on the line in Surrey. Hi, Al, what do you think? I think it's a big joke because our godfather, godfather of legal pot smoking, Justin Trudeau, would love to see tobacco banned, and you can only smoke pot. So that's the whole joke <laughs> about this conversation. Okay, thank you for that, Al. Let's go to Bob in Nanaimo. Hey, Bob, what do you think? Bob. Hey, Mike. Hi. I just, uh, I think, you know, we've had black markets uh, everywhere, so I think it's a great move by New Zealand. I would say New Zealand's a front runner in a number of things, but uh, just to your previous callers, I mean, you look at... Uh, we have a massive black market in, in marijuana, in booze, in seafood, in salmon. So, you know, I think yeah. the ban is, is a great thing. And I, I would hope here in Canada, particularly for the kids, I mean, some of us old farts, it doesn't really matter so much, but uh, get these young kids uh, um, away from them. Just don't provide it, you know, and, and they will move away. Okay, Bob, thank you for that. Let's go to Leo on the line in Sydney. Hi, Leo. Hi, I can confirm what Errol said because I've seen the, the answer that said, Adrian Dick said, let's get to move the drugstores into the 21st century. The problem is right now the hypocrisy. Drugstores are selling cigarettes while they continue to get taxpayer money. This is important. Get taxpayer money to help people quit for free. Yeah, right, so it's right. It's all down to Adrian Dix, the hypocrisy. We are the only person, the only province in the entire country that allows this to happen. Physicians for Smoke-Free Canada supports this idea, and the time has come. New Year's Eve is coming. People make decisions about quitting smoking then. This legislation has got to go in by January the 1st. Okay, Leo, thank you for the call. On that point, Jack, where he said you can go to a drugstore to get smoking cessation products, is that right? Can you get them for free? Yes, absolutely. Yeah. And that is one of the things in British Columbia. Uh, people uh, are, uh, we have one of the best quit smoking programs in the country right. in terms of getting access to pharmaceutical products to assist people the patch the gum, or you can go to your doctor and get some products and you may have to pay a little small fee for uh, Renaclean or Shampix, but there are good things sure. to assist people to quit. Hey, Jack, thanks for coming on, man. Appreciate it. Pleasure. Thanks, Mike. Merry Christmas. Uh, right. Welcome back to the show. Let's talk about that public mischief charge against Surrey Mayor Doug McCallum. Now, the story is wild. It's getting wilder by the day. The mayor accused of filing a false police report. Should Surrey taxpayers pay for his legal bills? This has now been confirmed by the city of Surrey. Taxpayers in the city will foot the legal costs incurred by the mayor after he was charged with one count of public mischief. This goes back to a confrontation the mayor had in September in a Save-On Foods grocery store parking lot in the south part of the city. Uh, people, There was a group of people there collecting signatures to keep the RCMP in Surrey, which is a contentious issue to say the least in Surrey. The mayor had a confrontation with them. And he says that uh, one of them hit him with her car. Here's, here's what the mayor said back then, okay? So let's go back to September. 
And here's what Mayor Doug McCallum had to say to Global reporter Catherine Urquhart. As she, she pulled out and, and turned right, she clipped my knee and, and my bottom leg and then ran over my foot at the same time and then took off. McCallum told us he did his grocery shopping, went to the hospital, then spoke to the RCMP. They asked me if I wanted to lay charges, and I said yes. Okay, Mayor Doug McCallum, last September, he wanted the driver of that Ford Mustang charged. He wanted to press charges. Well, it turns out the mayor is the one who is being charged now with public mischief. Should the taxpayers of Surrey pay for his legal bills? Let's discuss that now with my guest, Surrey City Councillor Linda Annis. I'm very pleased to welcome her back. Councillor, thanks for coming on. My pleasure, Mike. Okay, Councillor, what do you think? Should taxpayers in Surrey pay for the mayor's legal bills here? Absolutely not. He, by his own self-admission, was out on his personal time going grocery shopping. He was not on city business. The taxpayers should not be on the hook for it. Right. How is this, um, how is this policy applied? Like It appears that there's some sort of indemnification policy in, in Surrey, right? That in, in circumstances, you'll have your legal bills covered. Do you know what that policy is and, and who approved this? Like who approved the guy's legal bills being covered by the city? There's a, a bylaw that uh, talks about the indemnification of council members and the mayor. And in my opinion, it should not be used and applied for things that we're doing on our personal time. If we're charged with criminal behavior and we're doing something personally, we need to be on the hook for the charges. The best of my knowledge, um, city staff would just refer to the bylaw and it would move forward. That does not make it right, though. Yeah, so if you do get into some sort of legal jeopardy uh, in the while doing your official duties as a city councillor or the mayor, then you, do you think it would be reasonable to cover your legal fills, your legal bills if, if it's something that happened on the job? Absolutely. If it happens yeah. on the job, that's one thing. However, I would say if you're found guilty, that it's incumbent on the councillor or the mayor to pay back the, um, the legal fees to the city. The residents shouldn't be on the hook for our bad behavior. Okay, well... You know, we've asked the mayor to come on. The mayor has issued a statement saying he's not going to comment on on the case. It's before the courts, although he also told CTV the other day that he's not going to resign. He's going to, he plans to run for re-election next year, so he says he's not going anywhere. But I'm sure if he was here, uh, he would make the argument that he was on, he was on official city business because, uh, you know, as I recall the story back in September, he was taking issue with the people collecting the signatures on that petition in the supermarket parking lot there, and he went up and told them, you're not allowed to do this. This is against the rules. You're not allowed to collect these signatures. You know, he's a big believer in a local police force, and he was standing up for that. Is that not arguably part of his duties as mayor? The mayor's job is not to be enforcing bylaws. Uh, the mayor's job is to providing good governance to the city, and clearly he's not doing that right now. I think what's also very troubling for me, Mike, is the fact not only are the taxpayers on the hook for the mayor's legal bills, but we can't find out how much has been spent to date or what they expect the um, cost to be. I asked the question and was told by senior uh, staff that if I wanted that information, I had to ask the mayor because it's um, uh, client privilege with his own mayor, or I could do a notice of motion at council. Well, if somebody's paying the bill, they should know what the bill is. 
Right. Well, I suspect the bill will potentially be substantial. He's hired he's hired Richard Peck, who's a very senior lawyer in BC. This guy's a legal eagle. He doesn't work for chump change. This guy. Well, it doesn't. It raises two red flags for me. First of all, the mayor knows that it's a very serious matter, or he wouldn't hire a lawyer with uh, Richard Peck's reputation, which is absolutely stellar. Uh, we know that he's one of the leading lawyers in Canada. Uh, and the other part is he's expensive. I mean, and the taxpayers who are paying the bill have every right to know what that's going to cost. Yeah. Speaking to Surrey City Councillor Linda Annis, should the mayor, should Mayor McCallum resign over this, do you think? I absolutely think the mayor should step aside. Um, at, at this point in time, he's entitled to his day in court to be, you know, have his case heard. If he's found guilty, he needs to resign. In the meanwhile, he needs to step aside, take a leave of absence, not just from the city of Surrey, but also from the Surrey Police uh, Board as well. He's, in my mind, in a real conflict, particularly with the Surrey Police Board. He's um, directing a police agency, and he's also being investigated for criminal charges. There's a huge disconnect there for me. Okay, so you would say that he should step aside as chair of the police board. And, right. of, uh, and of the city for now. And as, and as mayor. So you think he should step aside as mayor, not just the police board chair, but as mayor as well? Absolutely, yeah. I do. That I, He shouldn't resign, uh, not until he's been proven you know, guilty, if that does come to pass. If it does, he needs to resign. But in the meanwhile, he needs to step aside, just like uh, what the mayor in Port Moody did when he was under investigation. Yeah, uh, of course, you know, in our country, everyone is innocent until you're proven guilty, and he hasn't been proven guilty of anything at this point. So why should he step aside if nothing's been proven yet? He should step aside because it's a real distraction um, in us doing business in the city of Surrey. Right now, we're trying to get a 2022 budget approved. We're nowhere near that at this point in time. We've not even gone as far as having the public engagement on it. We're all so focused on the mayor's um, charges that we're not getting down to business. And we need to get down to business. The city can't be going into um, the next uh, budget year without a budget. That's just bad oh. financial management. And, you know, we know there's some huge hefty um, uh, things happening, particularly the Surrey Police Service, and they can run rampant without having a budget approved. When is the budget normally approved? Normally, uh, it goes for um, public consultation the middle part of November, uh, around November 15th, depending on you know the, what day of the week that falls on. And then generally, after we've um, the residents and businesses of Surrey have had an opportunity to present their case on the budget. It then comes to council to be voted on, usually the second or third week of December. Okay, so this is behind schedule now already. Way behind schedule. Yeah. Um, council really hasn't um, even met much to be able to talk about what this budget should look like. Right. Speaking to Surrey City Councillor Linda Annis, um, the, the mayor continues to have, a, it appears, majority support on City Council. Uh, I received a statement from Surrey City Councillor Doug Elford, who is a supporter of the mayor on council, as you know. And I just want to read one one part of the statement here, Councillor, and give your thoughts. So uh, Councillor Elford and his colleagues who support the mayor on council say, we have, we, quote, we have immense confidence in the leadership of Mayor Doug McCallum, who has remained steadfast against aggressive, well-funded opposition who from day one 
have tried every trick in the book to undermine democracy. Unquote. That's from the mayor's supporters on council. What do you say to that, that the mayor is that his opponents have been trying to undermine democracy in Surrey? Democracy is about public engagement and transparency. And in Surrey, right now, under Mayor McCallum, we have neither. Just ask uh, the average resident, you know, what is the uh, new police transition going to cost? Nobody knows because it keeps changing. Have they been asked for a lot of input in terms of what? why are we doing this? Um, what uh, What is going to look differently in policing in Surrey once we make the change, if we make the change? The mayor's not giving answers. The mayor doesn't talk to the residents of Surrey. Uh, To me, the whole fundamental issue comes down around public trust, transparency, and engagement, and it's not happening. Councillor, thank you for coming on today. My pleasure. Thanks, Mike, for having me.